1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, you can find us online at www.doubtcast.org or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And the recently published, Doctor Professor Luke
2: Galen. Well, technically, I'm always publishing, but yes, you're right. One of my articles just came out of Free Inquiry Magazine. Woohoo!
0: Yay! Yay.
1: One of our favorites.
0: Yeah, you got uh, you got the banner on top of the magazine. You're the.
2: I asked for a picture. <laughs> they didn't put your name on on the. I asked top, for a though. name <laughs> and a picture. <laughs> yeah. And all they they get some Paul Kurtz guy to put his stuff in there. You what know, is technically, yeah, what's
1: up with that? What, what what makes someone a star? is when their name appears above the title. And while it's not your name, it's still your work appearing above the title. I I think you can actually now claim stardom. Mm.
2: Well, the listeners here have an advantage, and this is an advantage of listening to the podcast, because they heard all of it already, that the article is based on... So don't on bother reading it. Yeah, <laughs> so don't bother reading it. But, the profiles but share of the with Godless, your friends. Uh, yeah, share yeah. with your friends, buy magazines, give me some extra copies to send to my family.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the your big... Profiles of the Godless Now is this Is this the end point Are you done now With your study
2: No no, Dave It's just (laughs) beginning I'm sorry Yeah the uh there are some other academic publications that are going to follow this, so I have some uh, journal articles coming out based on these. CF- this is for those who don't recognize remember this. This is the CFI survey data mm-hmm. of the organizations of people who are non-religious. So there's going to be some subsequent publications of different aspects of the data.
1: Okay, so you're still crunching the numbers, still, still pulling out other other stuff from it. You're going to milk this one. I'm going to milk
2: it for all the w- in academia we have this term called the LPU, the least publishable unit, where you <laughs> it's where the study like an atom. You can't even break it down anymore. <laughs> you've you've chopped it up and published as Academic many different aspects <laughs> as you can. You know,
1: Excellent. But very exciting um, and, and a good magazine in general. And, and it's a great overview of the research. If
0: you haven't heard our treatment of it on the podcast, check it out. Well, and it's Anchor. nice to
1: have it in paper form too yeah, because it's a little it's, easier to follow. Yeah, it's hard to pull up a podcast and, and jot down all the statistics here. You have it right in printed form. Not that this is an
2: advertisement for that
1: magazine, because we don't do that. Just saying.
2: You know. We don't ordinarily want to promote or detract from free inquiry, but if I'm in it, buy it! Buy it, buy it, buy it!
1: The views expressed do not necessarily reflect those of WPRR.
2: We need Billy Mays on this show. He's dead. He could be re- resurrected from the dead. Galen's article, it gets out stains! It polishes silverware!
1: By the, by the way, creepy point of interest... Was watching TV the other day. Billy Mays selling life insurance.
2: (laughs) You never know when you
1: might. Uncomfortable. Well,
0: moving on. It's been kind of interesting if if you watch the arc of several of our episodes lately. In Onward Christian Soldiers, we talked about religious proselytizing in the military, distributing of Bibles, that sort of thing. We've talked about that. Uh, we've mentioned the family in our interview with Jeff Charlotte, this uh, secretive organization in Washington of elitist capitalist Christians.
2: I think we should have an episode called Family Guy, where we, re- where we reenact Mark Sanford and John Ensign <laughs> using the Family Guy characters. <laughs> you're not going to go down to Argentina, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you're freaking sweet. <laughs> yes, go down and do tango with someone who you're not legally married to. That would be perfect for your political career.
0: Wow, you're just the one-man family guy in a show. <laughs> well the interview we have this week with Chris Rada is actually going to tie all these different things together. A lot of these people that we've mentioned who are who are behind the proselytizing in the military, they work very closely together in, and several of them in addition promote a certain type of revisionist history of American politics and interpretations of the founders of American democracy, interpretations of their ideas and of what influenced the writing of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, revisionist histories that remove all reference to secularism or enlightenment thought and put in its place uh, biblical influence, Christian ideas that try to argue that this is a Christian nation and sometimes this even gets as far as the state curriculum when it comes to teaching the history and something we're going to be looking at today when it comes to teaching the bible bible as literature classes i'm sure everybody's heard of the texas state board of education some of the things they've done lately
2: which is an oxymoron but um...
0: governor rick perry recently appointed gail Lowe as the chair of the texas state board of education and uh, Gail Lowe hired David Barton to review the state's social studies curriculum. So we're used to these types of attacks by the religious right happening in in biology curriculum, attacking Darwinism. But now it's even getting into the social studies curriculum, civics. David Barton is notorious for cooking up fake founding fathers quotes –
2: I actually first encountered that uh, him as I was debating some guy online that gave me a Madison quote where Madison said the Bible is the basis of whatever, and I looked it up saying that doesn't sound like Madison, and it turned out that was one of the pseudo quotes that Barton had promulgated that said that Madison had said, but James Madison, it was never attributed to him, and in fact, he retracted it later on. So I, that's how my first encounter with him was people are using his... Pseudo historical quotes in yeah. debates on blogs and things like that on, on on chats, and that he has withdrawn some of them because he knows that they don't stand up to historical scrutiny. But his followers, they just take on a life of their own out there in the internet.
0: Yeah, he'll call them. Uh, what does he call them? Unsubstantiated quotes. He'll <laughs> call them unsubstantiated uh, quotes. Yeah, he'll call them unconfirmed quotations, uh, which basically means they don't. If you apply rigorous standards. To your historical inquiry, these would be tossed out, but he tries to preserve them anyways. Well, look, these are unconfirmed, but we have a lot of secondary sources and stuff who mention them, but the mostly parroting. So there'll also other. be
2: like gleaned from from correspondence where people said that they heard somebody talk to Madison had said, and so they would be you know, like second and third hand reports of what a founding father might have mentioned about religion. Mm-hmm.
0: So David Barton, if the actual historical documents don't support his views on American history. He is comfortable just manufacturing new evidence. And now the same man is actually going through and revising and editing Texas State's social studies curriculum.
2: This, the whole Texas thing has been going on for, for decades. Back in the Stone Age when I was in high school, our, my biology teacher told us the influence of Texas on the textbook market because nobody wants to publish a textbook as a publisher if it's not marketable in all the states so they even if they don't like deliberately include references that are sketchy they might just refrain from things like evolution there's a I'm blanking on their name but there's a husband and wife team that went through had a reputation over the years for going through and finding errors in books mm-hmm. but this wasn't just like mathematical errors they were conservative Christians who extended it to things like social studies and history and of course if they thought that the depicting of the founding of the country wasn't sufficiently Christian uh, that they would then flag those along with factual errors too mm-hmm. and so this, there's, a, there's a long track record of, of people in Texas tripping up the, the nationwide, the standards of textbooks under the guise of being historically accurate but then they're inserting their own politics into things like right. history as well
0: And it's clear that it's not just a political thing, that this is religiously motivated. For example, David Barton is also a darling of the National Council on the Bible Curriculum in Public Schools, the NCBCPS. What a long and annoying acronym. Uh, They claim that over a 1,000 high schools in 36 states are using their course materials for Bible as literature classes – the particular textbook they have is called The Bible in History and Literature. And several organizations have documented just how awful and biased and unconstitutional this particular Bible curriculum is. I just want to point out some of the highlights. This comes from the Texas Freedom Foundation. They did a couple of reports, one a more general report on Bible as Literature public school curriculums in the state of Texas, which is very disturbing, and then one that's specifically just on this textbook here, The Bible in History and Literature. And let me just read you some of the highlights. First of all, they support a biblical view of the world being 6,000 years old, a six-day creation, literal six a day, and even the coexistence of dinosaurs and humans. Pretty standard. Well, one thing to say is it's not standard in Christianity at large. This is the view of certain fundamentalist Protestant evangelicals. Literal 6,000-year-old six-day creation is an extreme viewpoint even in many corners of Christianity. Also in these curriculum materials, arguments for why current events confirm the apocalyptic return of Christ at the end of days and why that is imminent. So premillennial dispensationalist belief being prominently featured in this Bible and and these reports make it clear that these aren't like little side windows going, some extremists in America … Happen to believe this and this and this. It's it's presented in a way that lends support or credence to these ideas. All
2: I want to know is do they set a date or not because you know they could say there <laughs> will be no second e- edition of the textbook because the world will have by then ended. So.
0: Promotion of Christian readings of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament passages as prophetic of Jesus. So even if it's not sectarian in Christianity, which it clearly is, it's, it's promoting one religion, Christianity, over Judaism. In my Bible class, we don't even refer to the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament. We try to make that very clear that a lot of Christians read the Old Testament through their own lens and they don't understand that Judaism has different interpretations of these passages, significantly different. There's suggestions, it says, that the creation story of Adam and Eve divinely ordains an inferior role for women in society. And there's even assertions that Christianity supersedes or completes Judaism. A disastrous notion. (laughs) This idea of the the supersession of Christianity, that the Jews somehow rejected God and now Christians are the new nation of Israel – Back from the time of the early church fathers and later, this belief became a foundation of the persecution of Jews on behalf of Christians. Now, I'm not going to go into it now. I actually don't think the Bible supports that view. Uh, it, with the exception of maybe the, the gospel to the Hebrews, you don't really get a lot of that rhetoric. But it's made it into this textbook.
2: Is this surprising at all? I, I don't find any of it particularly surprising.
0: You know, I shouldn't either. But it does. i am just... I would have thought that a group like the National Council on Bible Curriculum, even if it was staffed by evangelicals, I would think they would be better at covering their tracks, right? Because this is so clearly a violation of the First Amendment.
2: They really, really believe it. And why should they be ashamed of fitting into the patriarchy and the anti-Semitism and to instantiate it within biblical textbooks?
0: Right. Well, it's not just some of their fundamentalist beliefs that get in here. There's all sorts of problems, too. Uh, One is just the complete shoddy research that's gone into this.
2: Yeah, that was what surprised me.
0: The curriculum continually cites Dr. J.O. Kinnaman. They call him a respected scholar. They have him in the textbook saying that all archaeological evidence, quote, always confirms the facts of the biblical record.
2: <laughs> I had somebody say that to me in a, in a blog debate the other day. He was saying, like, archaeology has supported the Bible, you know, everything that it says. There's people. And that, anybody that really who's know.
0: saying that, you immediately know how sheltered they are from the so mainstream literature. Israelites I mean, in
2: Egypt, Noah's Ark, what are we talking about here?
0: Yeah, yeah. Even getting up to the time of King David— there's a lot of doubt as to how historical any of this record is, uh, and so th- this is just absurd. It flies in the face of the, the dominant tradition in biblical scholarship that even a lot of Christians accept. But this expert, this supposed respected scholar, Kinneman also happens to believe that that he's seen Jesus school records in India.
2: <laughs> dur- oh, I hadn't heard that dur- one
0: during Jesus' childhood. He supposedly migrated to India and studied under uh, the sages course. there, and he has seen school records of him in India, uh, that he has records from the lost continent of Atlantis, and even that Egyptian Great Pyramids, he's found evidence that the Great Pyramid in Giza is actually – it was used to transmit radio messages to the Grand Canyon thousands of years ago oh. for some sort of reason. I mean, th- this guy – This guy isn't a respected scholar. He's hardly even just a Christian historical revisionist. This guy is a fringe, wacko lunatic.
2: And they're relying on this other writings of his in the textbook then. Mm -hmm.
0: That's their idea of a credible scholar. They include stuff like the idea that they, they actually claim in the textbook that NASA has evidence that two days are missing in our calendar thus confirming the biblical passage about the sun standing still in the book of Joshua. I mean this is, this is just silly, absurd stuff that I think even Ken Ham on his website, he says you know, creationists should not use these arguments. So somebody as extreme as Ken Ham doesn't buy into these things. And the other really disturbing thing is, is that most of this is just plagiarized. Actually, I shouldn't say it. it's disturbing because the plagiarized portions are probably the most accurate ones. Uh, for example, like portions of the textbook dealing with Pilate and Herod are taken nearly verbatim uh, from Microsoft and Carta's encyclopedia, the 2001 version.
2: There's a cutting edge thing.
0: Yeah. And they've documented this over and over and over again where they, they just lift these verbatim from other sources with nothing cited in the text – Sometimes they'll get a uh, a reference to one of these works that they're borrowing from, uh, but they don't clearly define what they're using and what they're not. Uh, they don't show any sort of indication that they have permission to use the text in this manner. So so a large portion of it is just, just plagiarized. And yet this curriculum has not only been approved by the NCBCPS board, it's actually being used in several public schools. And to talk about this Bible curriculum... And especially some of the historical revisionism that is found in it, we have a guest on the show today. Chris Rada works for the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. She's also a regular contributor to Alternet and the author of Liars for Jesus. <laughs> Chris Rada, thank you for being on Reasonable Doubts.
3: I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, you have written extensively about the National Council on Bible Curriculum in the Public Schools and their Bible textbook that they are trying to get public schools to use, The Bible in History and Literature. My first question is, what got you interested in this subject?
3: Uh, Well, I have been uh, on the subject of historical revisionism for quite a while. Uh, It actually started back um, during the... Judge Roy Moore rock debate, mm. and um, it really spawned from the internet. I accidentally stumbled into a message board one day and saw what people are talking about about American history and the Christian nation stuff, and knew enough about American history to knew, to you know spot the lies. I uh, started digging into it. my blog posts and message board posts started getting longer and longer and eventually footnoted and all of that, and people started saying, "Write a book." which I did, um, called Liars uh, Liars for Jesus, the Religious Rights Alternate Version of American History, and that led to looking at all of these other things. It led to me writing on the blog Talk to Action, uh, which is where I wrote the series about the Bible curriculum last year.
0: I would think that a textbook on the Bible and biblical history for public schools, which, incidentally, I I happen to think that's not a bad thing to teach if you can teach it from a non-religious perspective. That's a very important cultural document, and people should learn it in a secular fashion. But why would a textbook on the Bible be concerning itself with American history in the first place?
3: They're pushing the Christian nation rhetoric, American history. And one of the people on the uh, uh, advisory board is David Barton, who, of course, has been in the news a lot lately because of being appointed as one of the experts for the uh, Texas uh, um, uh, textbook curis- curriculum standards that are being written. And if you look at the uh, the entire uh, board of this Bible curriculum uh, organization, it's, it's people who want to, you know, become a theocracy. And uh, we were a Christian nation, and the Bible should be t- taught in schools, and we're... Um, laws should be based on the Bible. It's that crowd. So of course, this Bible curriculum for them is an excuse or a vehicle to push the kind of Christian nationalist history that they could never push in a history class.
0: Hmm.
3: And a lot of it is just not true
0: the Texas Freedom Foundation mentioned that some of the advisory committee are staffers from the American Family Association, right, the right. Eagle Forum, focus on the right. family. If you wanted a list of prominent right-wing right. <laughs> Christian nationalists, yep. this is who it who it would be. Yep. But but have uh, public school boards have have people caught on to this? Have they noticed that well, this is a sectarian not
3: because- yeah, apparently not because the um, more and more schools seem to be using it. Uh, Elizabeth Rittenhauer who founded this uh, organization, uh, she's you know on radio shows, on Barton's radio show, of course. Um, and every time she's on, it's it's so many hundreds or thousands of schools. This many hundreds of thousands of children have uh, already gone through the course, and it's spreading. And I don't think people realize because it's not a history course; they're not looking yeah. at the history. And, you know, this is uh, just to give you an example of how bad this is. Back in the mid-90s, Barton was forced, really, to put out a list that he calls unconfirmed quotations. Now, this is, uh, people that follow this sort of stuff will remember uh, Rush Limbaugh's use of the uh, James Madison Ten Commandments quote that was proven to be just this totally made-up phony quote. Um, Well, that forced Barton to... Uh, he calls it uh, raising his academic standards, but basically it was weaseling out of having used bogus quotes. Um, he put out a list titled Unconfirmed Quotations, and he advises his readers on his website not to use these quotations because they are unconfirmed, okay? So he's not going to come out right out and say uh, they're bogus. He's going to say they're unconfirmed. So, but he, he himself advises his minions, Not to use them. Guess where they showed up? In the Bible curriculum, (laughs) about six of them, including the Madison, sorry, laws are based on the Ten Commandments of God, whatever that quote was, uh, the Washington um, quote about being governed by the Bible. um, uh, These are all fake quotes, and Barton is aware. So he's on their advisory board. What the hell is he advising them on? That's what I was going to ask. ask. He's telling people don't use these quotes on his website. He's on the advisory board of the Bible curriculum. Six of these quotes are in the Bible curriculum.
0: So apparently his unconfirmed quote is just there to protect his own ass when people right, are calling exactly. him out on that.
3: And well, it's because he got busted. you know. And then he, he, um, his original book, um, uh, The Myth of Separation, which came out in, I believe, 1988 after uh, God spoke to him. This is his story. God spoke to him. He was a a teacher at uh, uh, a Christian high school that I believe his father runs. His degree is from Oral Roberts University in, like, (laughs) religious studies or something. And he was teaching at this Christian high school. And then God spoke to him and told him, David, look at the SAT scores recently. Okay, so this is how he got I swear you can't make this stuff up. Okay, so he does this, right? And that led him to see this trend in the decline of the SAT scores since they took... Uh, prayer at a public school. He could have saved okay?
0: time by talking, not talking to God and just going to published research well, I on guess, that if he uh, I guess,
3: you know, God, no, actually, I guess God told him to go look at the public oh, research. Oh, okay. Go he ahead. had no idea why. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this, this is how he got into this. I, I swear, this is how he got into this. Okay, so he puts out his book, The Myth of Separation, which, you know, bogus quotes, lies, and whatever. And he now, he didn't make uh, all of them up. Okay, some of these have been around since like the mid-1800s. Uh, the religious right will always say, oh, this all started in, uh, you know, 1947 when the, the Everson case popularized the phrase separation of church and state and whatever. So they'll pin it to that date or 1962 when prayer was taken out of public schools. But in the research for my book, I not only debunked the lies, I traced the history of the lies. Mm-hmm. And some of the, the history of some of the lies is actually a more interesting story than what debunks the lie. Um, and a lot of these go back to um, the mid-1800s, particularly with the big battles over Bibles in public schools at that time, and then back to the 1820s with the battles over the uh, Sunday mail delivery. And um, uh, one, of, one of the favorites that Congress printed a Bible in 1782 for the use of public schools That lie was actually started by the guy who printed those Bibles. In 1789, this guy had lost his shirt on printing these Bibles, right? Because apparently people weren't that religious, and even after uh, the entire Revolutionary War, no supply of Bibles from Britain, thinking people would just be jumping to get their hands on a Bible, well, he couldn't sell these things, right? He printed like 10,000 of them. So the guy goes broke, and... The new government, this is in 1782. The the new government comes in 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 1789, George Washington's president. He writes a letter to George Washington asking Washington to help him get the job as printer to Congress. Okay? In that letter, he goes into this well, I was, you know, asked by Congress to write this, you know, to print these Bibles. It was, and he he, totally exaggerates Congress's role in this publication of his Bible to basically say to Washington, hey, it's kind of Congress's fault that I'm broke. Congress should give me a job. Congress did write a resolution that they allowed this guy, Robert Aiken, the Bible printer, to publish in the uh, beginning of his Bible. But it was a a resolution saying that Congress found the Bible, his work, to be accurate. That was the point of it. They had the uh, chaplains of Congress look at it, because there was a problem back then with um, people not wanting to buy American printed books because they were inaccurate and full of you know, errors and they were bad quality and whatever. So um, Congress's resolution, if you read the whole thing, they're promoting the, the printing industry in America because it was during the Revolutionary War that American printers really had a chance to prove themselves.
0: They're approving it as an accurate facsimile, not as, this is the government-approved Bible. And
3: and their wording is, they approve this edition of the Bible for the American people. Okay, now that is turned into, they uh, promoted the Bible to the American people. No, they weren't promoting the Bible. And then Aiken had also made a number of other requests to Congress, such as uh, he wanted them to buy some of his Bibles to distribute to the states, he wanted, um, uh, when the war was coming to an end and he realized he was going to be stuck with all these Bibles when trade with Britain resumed, he um, wanted Congress to buy the Bibles to uh, give to the soldiers as uh, gifts when they were being discharged from the army. He wanted Congress to appoint him the official authorized Bible printer for America. and uh, Congress didn't grant any of these other requests. All they got out of this guy who was, if you read all the correspondence, he was just a pest, okay? Um, The only thing they did was pass this resolution that their chaplains had examined his work and all of that, okay? The current lie, which is in the Bible curriculum that's used by the people that want the Bible in public schools, is... Congress printed a Bible for the use of public schools when you really look and, and look at the documents and what happened and what who wrote what and everything that 's the kind of stuff you find
0: i 'm a big Jefferson fan, and I know some of those Jefferson quotes aren 't just taken out of context or something but in some cases these quotes are taken from a completely different source, such as a prayer book or some other religious literature right. at the time, and then they're attributed to right. one of the founders.
3: There's uh, one quote from Jefferson that uh, is on Barton's unconfirmed quotes list that has Jefferson saying the, the studious perusal of the Bible will make you a better person, whatever that is, okay? And this is one that the Bible curriculum people use on their website to promote their... their uh, curriculum and i believe it's also in the um in the text itself uh i hunted that one down turns out it was a letter written 30 so about 25 years later daniel webster recounting a conversation with jefferson that had taken place in like the 1820s okay now daniel webster was a big proponent of sunday schools so he's recounting this conversation with jefferson and said something to that effect of Jefferson said that he thought the studious perusal of the Bible, blah, 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 blah. That's, So it wasn't Jefferson, this is somebody else promoting Sunday schools 30 years later saying Jefferson said this. Now Jefferson may very well have said something to that effect, because he wasn't against people reading the Bible. Right. Okay, uh, But in that letter, interestingly, Jefferson also says that Sunday schools are the only proper way under the Constitution to teach religion. Hmm. Now, of course, they're, so they don't want to find the source. I, I'm sure Barton knows what the source of this is, but it does more damage to his cause than than help because right. he's not talking about public
1: schools. Not not public
0: schools. Right,
3: so so even if Webster's quotes of Jefferson in that letter were totally accurate, people like Barton would never want that letter to come to light.
0: Now, you said earlier Barton has a degree in religious education. He's he's yeah, not even a, a historian. Right,
3: he's, he's got a – oh, no, no, no. But see, I don't I – don't, Really point that because I don't have a degree in history either. I'm, I'm rolling along on like a grammar school education here, okay? So I don't criticize. I don't put much stock in degrees, okay? However, I do well, not I
0: totally understand as
3: anything other than what I am and i i never imply that that i have any credentials i don't
0: yet you're not employed by the texas state board of education exactly, to review their exactly, social studies exactly. curriculum
3: although i have been contacted by by uh, congress and the uh, uh, capital visitor center to uh, be one of the people in the battle of the uh, Religious exhibits in the Capitol Visitor Center, which I was keeping quiet uh, because I didn't want the other side to know that I'd been contacted, but I don't really care anymore. Because I've also put out a challenge, or actually accepted the challenge of Randy Forbes, uh, one of Barton's pals in Congress, who uh, now has his uh, religious history, uh, or a spiritual heritage resolution that's a, um, a 75 whereas clause, like litany of fake history taken from. Barton and Newt Gingrich and all of that and he's promoting that again. And on a radio show uh back at the beginning of July he said, you know, he would oh he, he brought it back up. He had introduced it last year as House Resolution eight eighty eight. We debunked it, defeated it, got several organizations involved, started this big campaign against it, it never made it to the floor. After Obama said in Turkey that we don't consider ourselves a Christian nation or whatever he said you know, Forbes got his knickers in a twist again and, and uh, reintroduced the same resolution as House Res uh, 397, and then on a radio show uh, in the beginning of July, he said, uh, I challenge the president or anyone else to come up and debate me on this and that, so I have now responded as in <laughs> anyone else. I sent the registered, uh, you know, certified return receipt letter. I have put it out on the web. I'm accepting his challenge. <laughs> Has he responded? said he's line in sand. I'm crossing it. So let's see how he responds. <laughs> <laughs> Has he
0: responded yet?
3: Uh, well, actually, the, the actual certified letter didn't go out till um, yesterday because um, so <laughs> okay. broke. I had to borrow money from a friend for the postage. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> seriously, so, I'm not I'm not on the right side to uh, you know <laughs> to uh, make you know make money. Uh, that's the other side. Um, maybe
0: this is a good point to uh, pause and, and tell our listeners where they can find your book, Liars. Oh, uh,
3: my website is uh, liarsforjesus.com. dot com, and what's on that website? There's several. Uh, free sample chapters, links to a bunch of articles I've written. And uh, there's links to the whole series on the Bible curriculum if people want to read the whole, I think, believe, nine-part series. Uh, if you scroll down on my homepage, that's there. Um, and also, I need to get in here that uh, uh, another website I want people to visit is uh, militaryreligiousfreedom.org. org. My day job. I'm the Senior Research Director for the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, and why that's relevant to the Bible curriculum is... One of the other people on the Bible Curriculum Board of Advisors is a man named Jim Ammerman. Hmm. Now, the the guy's on the Bible Curriculum, uh, and also uh, Murph just sent a letter to the Department of Defense demanding that this guy's a chaplain endorser, which means for a chaplain to be in the military, to be a military chaplain, Mm -hmm. you have to have an endorsement of a DOD-recognized endorsing agent, which means like the Catholic Church has a endorsing agency. Excuse me, the Lutherans have an endorsing agency. Jim Ammerman is the endorser, chaplaincy of full gospel churches. Uh, His organization is the endorser for all the sort of oddball, Pentecostal, charismatic uh, chaplains, okay? Uh, He's
0: they're very charismatic. This right. is like well, Holy Spirit vomiting and stuff like yes, that. Even
3: exactly, um, uh, yes. And if you read, um, uh, if you go to Talk to Action, it's talk the number two action dot org. Uh, Bruce Wilson has been uh, writing a lot about that um, uh, about Jim Ammerman and the, uh, the Prophecy Club and all of that. The New World Order is going to take over America. will be under martial law and blah blah blah. But the one one thing he did, among the many reasons his endorsing authority should be revoked by the DOD. Is in during the primaries in one of his chaplain newsletters, CFGC, the Full Gospel Church's chaplain newsletters, he actually called for the immediate arrest and hanging of the four Democratic senators Whoa. who were running for president. Okay, because they voted against the English as an official the official language bill. Okay, <laughs> uh, he's also claimed to have um, uh, used his chaplains as a network of spies to report back to him on troop movements, and he was the key man in getting a group, a network, organized network of 40 of his chaplains in Iraq to distribute Arabic Bibles to the Iraqi people because that's what they call true reconstruction of Iraq.
0: Well, okay, so this he's the one that's behind this?
3: Yes, yes, and it's all in... Uh, uh, if you look, I it, uh, post my stuff on Huffington Post... Daily and also Talk to Action. It's easiest to find on Talk to Action because there's not such a quantity of, of posts there. So if you just um, go to Talk to Action, click on my name under whatever one of my posts is on the front page right now, you'll get the list of, yeah, definitely. of all my posts and catch up on this stuff. But the we'll connections... have links
0: to that on our website for okay, our great, listeners. Great, great,
3: great. Um, uh, how I ended up working for Murph in the first place was because of David Barton. This is where everything's come full circle now, Hmm. okay? Two years ago, Bruce Wilson, who was one of the co-founders of Talk to Action, and also people know him. They may not know his name, but he was the guy that uncovered the John Hagee quotes that made uh, McCain have to uh, denounce (laughs) Hagee's endorsement during the election. When I was writing the series on the Bible curriculum, which was about two and a half years ago, Bruce... Um, just went and he, he wasn't really familiar with David Barton, but he saw his name in, in what I was writing. So he just went and started kind of Googling and, and Barton and curriculum and whatever, and hits on there's a David Barton essay in the Junior ROTC Core Curriculum American History textbook about the myth of separation of church and state.
2: <laughs> so, of course, he
3: tells me about this, and I go check it out, and sure enough. Uh, So I wrote a a piece which can be found if you go back in the archives on Talk to Action called um, uh, The DoD Bringing Historical Revisionism to a High School Near You. That led to a Murph volunteer, uh, seeing that, you know, this is something Mikey Weinstein, of course, would be interested in. Uh, she introduced me to him, and one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up working for Murph. So it's not, I mean, this stuff is all, uh, and now I'm, I'm also, uh, now working with, um, Jeff Charlton on the C Street investigation. I know you had him on a couple weeks yeah. ago. And I was talking to him last night. Uh, we've been uncovering a sort of joint investigation. He asked Mikey, to borrow me, because there's a lot to uncover with these Sea Street people about characters that are also uh, there's a lot of overlap. Put it that way between right. the families, the military, the historical revisionism. Randy Forbes and his prayer caucus. Randy Forbes is a member of the family. Of course, he's the same guy that I'm going after for the history revisionism resolution. He's best friends with David Barton. I mean, this is for some reason all the work that I do, whatever it is all seems to
0: overlap. It's giving us a clearer picture that, that many of these people themselves I guess have common cause presumably they're they're all pro theocracy? Oh, absolutely. Now my understanding is that the the folks that are part of a the family they are they're not anti Government, They're very – they're pro-government. They want a more of a Christian totalitarianism. Right, right. uh, But isn't this the Prophecy Club and some of these people? Well,
3: yeah, but there's the thing. These people don't care about the things they don't agree on, okay? Okay. Like if you look – if you just look at the Prophecy Club itself, you have someone like Jim Ammerman or his one chaplain, James Lindsay, that are like, you know – you know the whole government's uh, illegal or whatever, and and uh, you know you have that end. You have some that are not like that. You have some that are. I mean, they're 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 and even their own conspiracy theories conflict with each other. And for for your listeners who don't know exactly what the Prophecy Club is, just look up the Prophecy Club on the internet. And these are the people that, and they're also hooked up with the Minutemen. The, you know the people on the border. You know, and and uh, I mean, Amaranth's Yeah, this is just a collection.
0: Of different conspiracy theories like the Illuminati right, are right, right. Exactly. the government. And, and they,
3: uh, they don't care if their conspiracy theories conflict because they all have this common goal and the people that are buying into this stuff are so whacked. To begin with, that I don't think they're going to catch that the conspiracy theories conflict. Like like you know, Ammerman, his conspiracy theory about the Illuminati, he merges it with with the he calls them the Bilderbergers. Okay, the Bilderberg uh, meetings, whatever. But he says those started in 1776 when our, our by the Illuminati when our Declaration of Independence was being written. Now, of course, even the Bilderberg conspiracy theorists point to 1954 as the start of that. Okay, so that's what I mean about their, their own conspiracy theories don't, don't even match up. But, but it doesn't matter because um, uh, it's, they're, they're all nuts. I mean, there's no, there is no sense to it. There is no point in trying to figure it out. But someone who is a member of that organization who has been spewing conspiracy theories encouraging people to take up arms against our government and all of that should not be authorized by the Department of Defense to have I think he I yeah. believe he has uh, 270 chaplains and chaplain candidates currently in the military with motives other than being chaplains
0: absolutely not okay? it's, it's that's treasonous
3: yeah. and that's that's when I don't use the word treason lightly but some of the activities of the people like Ammerman I believe, should be called treasonous.
0: Right. Uh, Ammerman's relationship with James F., Major James F. Lindsay. Lindsay. Right, right,
3: right. This guy and,
0: believes right. that uh, Chinese troops are invading oh, yeah. Mexico yeah. right yeah. now and no, training no, 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 to cross no, 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 the no, no, border. No,
3: they, they're, they're well on their way to taking over the southwestern United States. <laughs> <laughs> and, and,
0: Apparently and, course, no one has and, photographs of this or no, no, anything no, no. else.
3: And, and, and our, our Marines have, um, have already been screened to, uh, uh, to find out which ones of them would shoot American citizens, and they've been given special U.N. ID cards because they'll come under U.N. control. So people have to, um, and, and I think, was it Lindsay or, I can't remember, it was it Lindsay or Ammerman that said this? That that he actually told people, you know, like, it's time to, you know, arm yourselves because the U.N. troops will be coming to, like, steal your food and, and take your right. money and rape your lives and, and your daughters lies. and all this. But uh, What's <laughs>
0: disturbing is that there's people in Congress who don't realize how crazy, how completely right-wing lunatic some of these people mm-hmm. are. And they feel that people like Barton and others are, are yes, legitimate.
3: Absolutely, and, and, and I, can, I can give you a really good example of why people need to recognize how dangerous this is because, uh, you know, I often you know got people saying, well, why do you spend so much time on the uh, historical revisionism stuff and all of that because they see it just as this, you know, battle on the Internet of, uh, you know, doing quotes and this and that. No, it's not that. These people, the leaders of this, The Christian revisionism, theocracy movement. They don't care about the Ten Commandments displays or under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. Those are the things that get the masses of people riled up. Mm -hmm. Okay? They're the tools. And to give you an example of what this can lead to is about the scariest example I've seen so far. Back in, I think it was the 109th Congress, it was a couple years ago, a bill was introduced called the Pledge Protection Act. It would have stripped the federal courts of their authority to hear any cases related to the Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) Okay, now, the Constitution, of course, Article 3 of the Constitution says the the federal courts are there to hear, you know, all cases arising under the Constitution, the Supreme Court, that's what its purpose is, all cases arising under the Constitution. So the theocrats in Congress, they introduced this bill to strip the courts of the authority to hear Pledge of Allegiance cases uh, by misconstruing a a little clause in the article. I'm not going to get into that, because uh, the important thing is that the debate should have been focused on Article 3 of the Constitution, the article that says what the courts have jurisdiction over, okay? Now, because the issue that they used to bring this to the floor was the Pledge of Allegiance, Everybody masked what the, real, what the bill would actually have done, which would have been to uh, one of the most dangerous breakdowns of the separation of powers between Congress and the courts.
0: They would have it's, just removed that, that very important check. Right, um, exactly,
3: but because they made it about – it's the Pledge Protection Act, and the issue – the particular constitutional issue was the Pledge of Allegiance. Everybody just got sidetracked right. into a debate about the First Amendment and religion and all of that, okay? That bill passed in the House. It did not pass in the Senate, thank God, but um, uh, it passed in the House by a, a pretty substantial margin. I watched the entire debates on this two days. The Article 3 was barely mentioned. <laughs> the First Amendment, so this is the thing. They can mask the real issue, the precedent that that would have set, which then could be used to pretty much remove the court's power to hear a case on any other type of issue at at whatever their whim is at the moment, okay? That was one of the scariest things I've ever seen happen because of this history revisionism stuff, dangerously uh, close to pretty much just obliterating the separation of powers.
0: Well, so...
3: On that scary note. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, one of these guys now is uh, is reviewing social studies curriculum yes. and basically has the power now over what textbooks will be published across the United States well, because yeah, if a, it goes in Texas.
3: Yes. Very important point, and, and, and uh, people need to know that, that it's not just Texas.
0: Right. Well, what can we do to stop some of these people?
3: Uh, well, you know, we have organizations like the Texas Freedom Network who are, Fantastic! That are down there in Texas. I would uh, just definitely say support uh, whatever the Texas Freedom Network's doing. Um, uh, write about it. Write to papers. Write to just, I mean, people need. what well, people need to know. This is the main point. People need to know because a lot of people say, "Hey, there's just something going on in Texas. Who cares?" Okay. Uh, the reason Texas is so important, and actually, Barton's been gloating about this on his radio show for months now. It has to do with California's economic crisis. In the past, the two most populous states, of course, are California and Texas. So the textbook publishers, for economic reasons, they do not uh, publish separate individual textbooks But for whatever state in the United States wants. They take the Texas curriculum standards that are decided on by these boards, like what Barton's on now, and it was always Texas and California, okay? So you had – California is what kept – the textbooks from being a Barton textbook, okay? They kept Texas alive. You know, it was a checks and balances thing, okay? We had a blue state, we had a red state. Now, California is not in the picture in this round of text, uh, or curriculum standard setting, which is hmm. going to be for the textbooks that I believe will be starting to come out in 2011, hmm. because they don't have the money to be involved in it, which, which means that Texas, Barton, and Gail Lowe, a creationist who thinks public schools are unconstitutional, is what I've heard, but she's on the chairman of yeah. the Board of Education. Um, uh, <laughs> who, I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, you also have Peter Marshall. You also have Daniel Drivesback, who uh, I write about him in my book. He's one of what I call the smarter liars for Jesus. More, more intellectual, more scholarly. His things sound more plausible and he's got some credentials, but he's as uh, theocratic as the rest of them. Um this is going to influence the textbooks for the entire country. So everybody, no matter what state you're in, you got to be watching this.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Chris Rada, so much for joining us on the show and raising awareness about this. One more time, where can, where can our listeners find your book?
3: Okay, my, my website is Jesus com To keep up with Murph stuff, it's militaryreligiousfreedom.org.
0: All right, thank you so much for joining us Great. on the show.:
3: Thanks for having me on.:
0: All right, thanks again to Chris Roda for that fascinating and very disturbing interview. Now, in the remaining time we have for the episode, we're going to completely switch gears to something that I think we've been wanting to talk about for a while, haven't gotten around to it, and I think many of our listeners want to hear us address again on the show, and that is the issue of vegetarianism.
1: For those of you who didn't listen to that episode, which was episode 43, uh, you should probably go listen to it for a complete summary of what we had to say. And one of the interesting things about that episode actually is the fact that, Jeremy, you did most of the arguing, and you at the time were the only non-vegetarian in the room
0: that's that's correct but i've I've actually reformed my own behavior since then. You I've... talked yourself
1: into it,
2: yay, we broke him down, dear listeners.
0: Yes, well, it's hard listening to yourself argue for something and and realize that you're a total hypocrite, so his, that's
2: his pack of lies eventually <laughs> caught up with him
0: so we'll we'll see if that that makes a long term difference or not, but so far, so good.
1: Yeah, in uh, um, large part, we talked about um, kind of Peter Singer's argument, utilitarian argument for avoiding suffering. That's right. The
0: idea is that suffering is something that we and many non-human animals have in common. We mentioned sentient creatures, and some people were unclear on what what we meant by sentient. All right. we meant was animals that have some sort of experience of pain and pleasure. So this probably doesn't
1: include sponges. Right.
0: And Uh, one way to put it is there is something that it is like to be a cow. There is something that it is like to be a pig. There is some sort of mental experience that these animals are having. And if it includes pain and suffering, that means that we need to factor their pain and suffering into our
1: moral decisions. And we should try to minimize the pain and suffering.
0: Now, as a – this this is meant to make a distinction between pain and intelligence
1: because right?
0: Right. some people say because we're more intelligent or we have language, therefore, we don't have to consider any moral interests of an animal.
1: But that would mean the severely mentally handicapped humans um, whose intelligence is uh, no greater than some animals would be open for consumption. Right um, so, so if we 're not going to do that,
0: the only reason why we would be doing that is some sort of arbitrary preference for our own species, yes. which isn 't a very firm foundation for an ethic so that 's the basics of the case we were making, just really just repeating singer 's case, and I want to make this clear too we weren 't arguing for animal rights per se, right we were arguing for considering animals interests into our moral calculations. Mm-hmm. So we're not even tackling the idea of should they be given rights? Sh- what sort of legislation should we pass here? All we're talking about is if you already accept a system of ethics where suffering is bad and it- unnecessary suffering should be reduced, then you need to consider the interests of all beings that suffer. Several people objected to our arguments on that episode.
2: We got a lot of listener mail
0: All right. Well, maybe we should start with one that I don't think is all that serious. And some people brought up the idea that, well, plants are alive. What if plants can experience suffering? Should we eat them? And uh, even if they can't, isn't that morbid to eat something that is actually living while you ingest it? I I don't really take that too seriously. Uh, First of all, because from what we can tell, plants don't have a central nervous system. Which means there probably isn't an experience of what it means to be like a plant. Which means it's really hard to count that plant as having ethical interests in its in its own right. At least working from a utilitarian ethic, it's it's unclear how they could have interests in not suffering if if they're probably not suffering.
2: And there are plants out there who actually want us to eat them because that's how they propagate. Uh, and so there's evidence that they've co-evolved to be eaten in many cases. Uh, in fact, if you've read any of Michael Pollan's work on like omnivore and things like that, or that if you look at from a, a broader picture, of the, evolu- the evolutionary ecosystem picture, they've done a very good job at manipulating us to grow them. You know, mm-hmm. if you're just a shabby little hemp plant somewhere, and somebody's accidentally smoked you and decides to breed you, that that you're done remarkably well as a plant to be to be grown like that. Some yes. seeds so we can only germinate after we pass them through our bodies. So
0: Increase their fitness. So, yes, we would be guilty of the naturalistic fallacy if we were to say, OK, well, just because that's the way it is, that's no, the way well, it should yeah. be. But um, it is recognizing that if we mess with that, we could upset a natural order or balance that we've lived with for thousands of years now. Um, I think there's another reason that may not seem obvious to people why this is a silly argument, and, and that is we do have to eat something. Right, and so if you really were concerned about plant welfare, we need to feed animals all that plant material to raise them for us to eat the meat. Even if plants did feel pain, we would be causing far more suffering by maintaining plants to feed
2: livestock. Yeah, didn't we address the, the 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 similar criticism that why you know uh, then then your cat or your dog needs you know eats meat? Why? Yeah, why that I was did.
0: another one that came up. Uh, think- are we feeding our pets?
2: I, thought, I don't know if I, thought, I remember addressing that, but maybe it wasn't here. But yeah, but the objection of that one is similar. In that is, is that they need to, they need to that that to survive, and they don't have a choice in the matter. I have a choice in the matter.
0: Right, and that was our argument. Our argument was for people like us who are living in United States, who are living in the first world, where we have access to plant foods that can sustain our diet. Uh, we're, we're not expecting people living in the third world, in impoverished countries, to follow this. We're not expecting animals,
2: <laughs> it's unnecessary animals that need suffering. to
0: eat meat. Yes, we're trying to eliminate unnecessary suffering. Well put. Some people brought up the fact that uh, fish, eating fish, is no less worse than eating livestock, that fish do indeed suffer. They can feel pain. People brought up how some fish species actually have really elaborate social uh, systems. And the thing is we, we actually Dave, – Dave said he eats fish. And it's true that I do eat fish sometimes, but actually we weren't saying there was any real difference there. Um, I think I think we would agree that it's a double standard. There may be some different reasons if you need to get a complete protein somewhere, uh, especially if you are sick or have some sort of medical consideration where that may just be necessary. That would be an instance of necessary suffering. But, yes, we were admitting a certain level of hypocrisy in that to begin with. Incidentally, though, I heard of a really interesting method of fish farming. Have you heard where they're they're conditioning fish to actually swim into the pen after their after their life? Do they have a fish call?
2: <laughs> You're a fishy fish.
0: They do. They train them. They train them to respond to a tone, and when the tone is played, they swim into cages. And what they do is they train them when they're young fish. They let them go off into the ocean, and at a certain time, where they should have reached a certain body mass and it would be useful they replay that tone and because of these deep sound channels or something i guess low wavelength frequencies travel really well as we know from underwater. the
2: underwater uh, sonar experiments with subs
0: yeah they can call they can call these fish back to the pen and they come out from the wild and they swim back in and so that's a, a method of fish farming that actually wouldn't be wouldn't cause all that much suffering to the fish.
2: See, I think that the the, the whole point of the debate is that, that there's a gradation here that doesn't have a strict, once you've eliminated the humans versus other boundary as being legitimate to saying, you know, oh, it's okay to eat anything as long as they're not human. We talked about that with the Peter Singer stuff. There's no smooth boundary on the phylogenetic scale. Some people draw the line at heads. Some people draw the line of any nervous system, you know. And I think that's that. it's important to recognize that nature is not going to offer any clear-cut answer. There's always going to be someone saying, you're a hypocrite because you ate a plant. You're a hypocrite because you ate a shrimp, even though it wasn't a fish. And I think that's the point is that the debate should be had uh, that about where there's not going to be a, bl- a bright line that's going to be placed right. saying there's the ethical boundary. You know, we can do the best we can. It's just like with abortion, you know. Yes, it's, you know, if you agree that it's wrong to kill a baby by, you know, As soon as it's born, but uh, an embryo is okay. then you just you start moving the line. And we we arbitrarily draw certain ethical lines. But I think the debate should be had as to why those lines are legitimate.
0: Right. And I think some people maybe understandably didn't get exactly what we were saying there. And they thought uh, one one listener accused us of committing the naturalistic fallacy there. So, again, what we would be doing then is saying. Because that's the way the world is, there are no clear-cut gradations between us and non-human animal species. Therefore, what directly follows from that is we should all be vegetarians. And there's a step missing in there uh, that we weren't. We weren't implying that just because evolution is true, therefore it's absolutely clear that this is morally wrong. We were adding an extra moral postulate to that, an idea of utilitarian, that it is good to reduce suffering. Now, if somebody out there denies that idea and thinks you know, preventing suffering is not a cornerstone of my ethics, I don't think that should be a core value of any sort of ethical system, well, then they might have an argument against us. Now, I think most people do embrace on some sort of level that suffering, if it's avoidable, if it's unnecessary, then it should be prevented. If you do accept that as a moral postulate, then yes. Then you need to look at evolution and see some implications there. Does it follow directly to vegetarianism? No, but we were trying to fill in the gaps by explaining what the meat industry is like here in America with factory farming and everything else, how it can be avoided, what the environmental damage is, and kind of bridge that gap between them. So what about the question of animals that are not factory farmed, where they grow in this kind of mom-and-pop farm situation where they live pretty happy lives, grazing and everything, and then, you know, it's the bullet to the head, probably every day, every no suffering. their life
2: is happy except the last minute.
0: Except the last minute. Well, what do you think about that?
2: I would say that that would be preferable to a factory farm, although I think, again, that that's on the gradation of things that there are steps even more than that that – that should be done. I don't, you know. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, I recognize that it's impractical that the entire country is going to suddenly overturn and, and vegetarians overnight. But if I had that as an option in lieu of factory farms, I would support that.
0: So... We're kind of admitting in principle that it's you know vegetarianism isn't the only outcome. What is important is reducing the suffering, and there might be other ways to do it. Now, the thing is, with these mom and pop farm operations, is I, I don't think they'd, they're practical, large scale for feeding the the meat needs of the current. There's public. definitely
2: a trade off. I think that that like uh, like Michael Palms' books have made clear. Then that is that when you have a whole system based on unicrops – and, like, uh, big agribusiness, that, yeah, it's the, any small farmer who has some cows and chickens, maybe grows a little bit of this, a little bit of that, is going to go under without some sort of subsidy. But I think the point is, is that people are willing. We've been lulled into accepting cheap food as that uh, the price we pay is, is based on, like, fossil fuels and, you know, factory farming. All that's predicated on cheapness, as if that's the only consideration. Screw, you know, the environment be damned, welfare of the animals be damned, our diet be damned. We want it cheap, and I think that there is a price to pay, and I th- a lot of people like in uh, the slow food movement in Europe are paying that price. They recognize that you know it's going to cost more to raise my own hog, right. or it's going to cost more to grow without uh, chemicals or fertilizers and things like that, but they pay more for the food, and they would argue that you actually get higher quality food you don't need as much. And so, yeah, I would say if, if, maybe if everybody can't be a vegetarian, if we would just reduce the amount of meat, that, that we would gain something by having things grow grown on a smaller scale, that the quality of the diet would improve. Mm-hmm. You don't need a burger every meal if you have you know a, a high-quality uh, diet.
0: Well, and that's an answer to another objection that was raised, that somebody who was a former vegetarian was of the mind that, look, they're just not making a difference. One person abstaining from meat. Is not going to make uh, a big difference. And so, are they really doing anything to help the suffering of animals? And then they went on with an argument like, you know, a certain amount of suffering is just going to be necessary in any sort of system. Um, but I, I think that's a good an- answer to that is that many people who are becoming vegetarian or buying meat from local sources that are not factory farmed, that are using more humane treatments. You know, as many people as you get doing that, they do make a difference well, you because they influence the too. demand.
2: Why should I vote? I'm just one person. Any right. social contract issue is going to be like that. But the standard ethically should be: I should act in such a way that if everybody else acted that way, that would make my life better.
0: It's kind of Kantian. I don't. But without getting into that, yeah, I, I think. Did
2: uh, you just call me a Kant? Con- he said it. He I said just, it I just know, I just know. little cont.
0: I just know somebody's going to jump on us immediately. Oh well, now you're doing utilitarian arguments in one frame, and now you're switching over to the categorical imperative. I, I don't think it matters. I think the point is not, that everybody behaving in a certain.
2: I don't have your philosophy background, but isn't it utilitarian to argue that somebody should act in a cum- in a way that if others should act that's that there's a cumulative effect? That's yeah, practical. yeah. No, you're right. That's you're measurable.
0: Right. That'd be principle utilitarianism. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They're they're compatible. He's he's picking on me. I'm not picking on you. So, I wasn't convinced of too many of the arguments that were against the vegetarianism per se, though there were a lot of thoughtful examinations of the idea and I thank everyone who contributed to that conversation. Now, there were some comments on that episode critiques of
1: that episode that I think are kind of valid. Uh yeah, one on the blog uh, from RSM uh, we, we had talked about um, or I had brought up the question of Eastern countries and how their environmental eastern religions well well Eastern countries being affected by Eastern religions because we had talked about how a lot of the Western approach to um, environmentalism right uh, good and bad is influenced by western religions so i had I had thrown out there what do we know about countries like China, Japan, etc., that are influenced by Eastern religions, you know, Buddhism, that sort of thing, where, where there is a much more naturalistic element of the religion itself. How does that influence the, the countries? Well, one listener said that, quote, China crashed its ecology several times during its history. A big one was due to deforestation due to charcoal usage and shipbuilding. The one I recall off the top of my head was pre-1492 – Going back a ways, religion doesn't play a role in that. But the effects I recall include starvation, crop failure, productivity drops, deurbanization, economic activity reduction, and desertification. Desert, desert, and desertification. You turned
2: everything into a banana fudge split Sunday. Yeah, uh, <laughs>
1: um, I don't think that any of us came out and said that. Eastern countries are more environmentally friendly because of Eastern religion.
0: Yeah, I think we we had kind of considered it for just yeah. a moment. You'd asked the you'd asked that question. We mm-hmm. talked about how closer I made the comment closer to nature right. some of these Eastern religions are. But we did follow it up with a comment immediately following after that. But of course, China
1: is a greater polluter That's right. <laughs> than a lot of countries. And, and we had said we really don't – we didn't have statistics. We didn't have any, any studies to talk about environmental yeah. issues in um, – I think what people picked up on is I made
0: the comment that that these eastern countries had industrialization just dropped in their lap. Right. And what I was getting at was that that was a harder – that made it harder to test how their religious views sure. – would affect their environmental policy because you know there's other factors coming in here and it did not grow
1: it. out of their culture, it was given to their culture. The right. industrialization.
0: Yeah. Now what, what this commenter's point shows is that far before the Industrial Revolution right. is is just introduced to these countries that you know there are yep. Ecosystems collapsing due to human activity. And he's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And I looked up more things after that and was like, yeah, you know, this is all across the board. It seems every culture and society does this. So...
2: It's probably accurate to say that the process of industrialization trumps any type of religious or cultural difference in the society. When societies get a little bit of technology, they start to industrialize, they industrialize and they have environmental damage. You could argue that the most... Uh, that the most environmentally friendly countries that have been industrialized are now not Eastern ones, but the western ones in Western Europe, so like denmark as there 's been responses to yeah, yeah they 've the already seen all that damage. yeah and and they're and they 're now going wind, going solar going uh recycling in, in ways that are much higher than any other place in the yeah
1: planet. i I guess my in initially bringing up this this part of the conversation what I was trying to get at is shouldn't these Eastern religions influence uh, a little bit more environmentally friendly type of, of mentality because they're much more naturalistic? Shouldn't that be the case? Is that what we're seeing? And it's I, – I guess it's not in, in yeah. most instances. I
0: guess it turned out it's not. So thank you everybody for sharing your criticisms and comments on that and making for a very lively discussion on the blog. And I hope we've addressed
1: some of those here. Yeah. And that's all for this week. Check out our Facebook group or our webpage, www.doubtcast.org. Send us emails at doubtcast at or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle at slash doubtcast.
2: We were so wrong about that, listeners, so we're gonna slaughter a lamb on air. I'd have some intestines <laughs> on my face. Jeremy oh, please, has Please
3: don't kill me.
2: Pass me the tripe. Live on the air, we're gonna slaughter a kitten and eat it. Are you happy, going. listeners? Are you happy? You drove us back to eating meat. Mew <laughs> mew Only meat. <laughs>